0: It's good to finally be back into the book of uh, First Thessalonians after several weeks of a break. We have had a series of guest speakers. Uh, I've been out of town, and we 've had some topical messages, and so I think it's been about six weeks uh, since we've been in this uh, book of the Bible that we 've been uh, going through expositionally, and it is uh, good has been good for me this last week to be um, preparing and, and to be back into this book. <clears throat> So I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to First Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at a very, very brief portion of Scripture tonight, um, and then next week we're going to complete this section. I had hoped to do it in one lesson, one sermon, but um, I found that to be, at least from my vantage point, an impossibility. You could actually take a series of messages and speak on sanctification and sexual immorality, and that's really... What we're going to be looking at tonight in the context of the holiness of God. We've been considering Paul's exhortations to press on the first couple of verses of chapter 4. We looked at the last time we were together. Uh, you'll remember I said chapters 4 and 5, are they really expand his pastoral prayer that we saw at the end of chapter 3. Remember those verses 11, 12, and 13 when he's praying for them that they would be holy that they would be established, that they would grow in love for one another. And so he explains in in chapters 4 and 5 really is an expansion of that. And more particularly, it's an expansion of verse 10. Look back in chapter 3, verse 10. As we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we might see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. And really, chapters 4 and 5, the application section, really seem to con- really give instruction to complete what might be lacking in their faith. By way of review, uh, Paul had already introduced the need for holiness in his pastoral prayer at the end of chapter 3. And he amplifies on that, of course, in chapter 4. In light of the indicative reality of God working in His people, chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, that the Lord is working in them to establish their hearts and so forth, now He gives the imperative. He gives the commands that were to do, the natural outworking, if you will, and these ethical exhortations, as they, as they have been called through chapter 4. Now, the main point of verse 1 that we looked at, we spent a great deal of time on, is that they might do all... To glorify God. The ultimate purpose for the Christian in the Christian life is not to make himself happy, it's to glorify God. And that's what we heard earlier from the Piper quote. Now tonight we're going to see Paul's clear exhortation to holiness. We've seen that Paul has demonstrated himself to be a faithful pastor throughout this epistle. He's very concerned for their holiness. He's very concerned for the truth of the gospel, that it might be multiplied, that it might be propagated. He speaks about his pure motives back in chapter 2. And so as a faithful pastor, he's diligent not only to impart the spiritual truth doctrinally, but to motivate them to apply that truth practically. And that's where we're at now and where we will be for the rest of this letter. Brothers and sisters, it is my prayer that God would challenge us through his word, that we would be motivated to apply these things to our own heart and that we might have a desire to grow in the grace of Christ. It is likely that when Timothy visited them and returned to Paul, that that Timothy brought a report that, that needed Paul's immediate attention and there was probably two main areas that needed to be addressed. The, the area of sexual purity, which he is addressing here, and then the doctrine of the second coming of Christ, the parousia, right, that he mentions at the end of chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, and in 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2 and 3. He mentions it more, I mean, that word occurs more in these two epistles than all the other epistles combined in the New Testament. So there was a misunderstanding about the second coming of Christ, those who had died in the faith and and all that, and we're going to get into that and we're going to unpack that. So the two main areas of concern were likely sexual purity, sexual immorality, and then the thinking on the second coming of Christ. So let me ask you a question. This is New Year's Eve. We're, we're, We're knocking out the last few hours of this very year and we're about to embark on another year. As you look back at your life in 2006, can you honestly say, yes, I've seen spiritual growth. I have progressed in my sanctification by God's grace. Or can you say, no, I've regressed and I need grace to to, to progress. Ask yourself these questions tonight. Consider, do you have any goals for this upcoming year? Set some goals. Write down goals. And don't write them down and stick them in a drawer. Read them often and challenge yourself that you might grow. Now Paul clearly has, um, and when he speaks of holiness and sanctification here in verse 3, he clearly has sexual sin in view. I thought it would be helpful tonight to look at sanctification and holiness in a general context, first and foremost, and then next week we'll take verses 3 to 8 in the context in which they occur in the book of 1 Thessalonians, of course, focusing on sexual immorality and those types of sins. Pornea is the original, is the Greek word. And so I think it would be good for us to understand a little bit more about the holiness of God, to understand what is sanctification, so that we can apply these things um, to ourselves. Now, I'll just mention, uh, by way of introduction, um, the in Thessalonica, the norm for um married relationships was very perverted I mean this is the the Greco-Roman era where prostitution is not even thought to be bad Husbands um, husbands uh, that uh, could satisfy himself with a mistress and these things were looked upon as perfectly normal so that's the context of these new believers this young church that has been converted that has been born again there's new life now but this is all around them and now they're being told that that is wrong that that is outside of God's will. And this applies to us today. We live in the 21st century in the United States of America, and we are bombarded with sexual images. Women that do not clothe themselves properly, billboards. And many of you, probably all of you, have a pipeline to perversion with a computer or cable TV that with the click of a switch or the entering of the URL you instantly have all of that inside of your home we need to be challenged in these areas we need to grow in holiness and we need to have a determination to cut off sins like that and to raise up guards and to have accountability with one another we must be careful the Bible speaks much about our sexuality sex is good in the context in which it was created God has said that But we have to be careful. Perversion is evil. And we need to bring our thinking about sex in accordance with the will of God. You see, our body is not our personal playground, as one man put it, to do with whatever we want. Because you are not your own. As a born-again, blood-bought Christian, you have been bought with a price. The precious blood of Christ. So it is vital that we control our bodies in all areas of our life and lead a holy life. So tonight we'll look at an exhortation to press on to holiness and the motivation to do so. We're only going to look at the first phrase in verse 3 of chapter 4. And next week, as I said, we'll take up the whole section. So tonight we have three basic thoughts. First of all, you must know God's will. I'll explain that in a minute, his moral will. You must know his will. You must live holy lives, and then we're going to see the motivation um, to live holy lives. So first of all, let's read verse 3. I think I'll read all of verse 3, and we'll just be taking up the uh, first half of it. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual Immorality. And I'll stop there. We're just going to look. This is the will of God, your sanctification. The title of the message is an earnest exhortation to live a holy life according to the will of God. And I hope this is an earnest exhortation. I feel the need, pastorally, to exhort you from the word of God that we need to grow in our sanctification. Now, first of all, you must know the will of God. Now, this phrase is very it's connected to the end of verse 2. Remember verse 2? It says, For you know the commandments we gave you by what? The authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God. That authority and the will of God is connected there by the Greek gar. So it's connected. Now how in the world can you know God's will, you might ask? How can you know God's will? It's not by fleeces. It's not by what you dream tonight. If we determined God's will by our dreams, I think we'd all be in trouble, wouldn't you say? It's not by our feelings. It's not by going to the tarot card reader down at Balboa Park to find out what 2007 may unfold for you. It's not any of these things. Where do we learn the will of God? From His Word. From the Word of God, Right? From the Bible, He has spoken to us in His Word. This is the final authority. It says very clearly that the, that the Word of God is profitable. It is profitable for us in teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness. Listen to the Westminster Confession of Faith speaking on the Word. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for His own glory and man's salvation, faith and life, "...is either expressly set down in the Scriptures, or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added by new revelation of the Spirit or traditions of men." And we have in the Word of God in the New Testament specific instances sometimes where it actually says this is the will of God. Such as our text before us tonight. It's indisputable. It is very clearly set forth. And it makes it easier for us to understand. Now God's will, theologically, is often discussed in two general ways. And this is a whole other message. We're not going to unpack this completely, but I just mention it to you. His decreative will, what he decrees, we cannot fully know and understand. We cannot know that. That is God's unthwartable plan. Um, in the world and, and with, uh, with God's people and, and all of that. We can't know that. That is uh, part of his infinitude. That's beyond what we can understand. But we can know his moral will, which he commands, such as this before us here. This is clearly his moral will. It is something that we ought to do, but yet we can reject. Not that we're permitted to reject it, but we can reject it. Would you look in verse 8? So that he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. His moral will can be rejected. That's a dangerous place to be in, a habitual pattern of rejecting his moral will. So God's will for them is that they would be holy. That's what sanctification means. And the, the word is actually repeated in verse 4 and verse 7, and we're going we're to look at that in its context um, next week. But first I want to talk about some mistakes that have been made about the will of God. We have to beware of subjective thoughts. We have to be careful about influences and, and dreams and God told me this and these types of things. We have to be careful about that. This is His final authority. And if it doesn't agree with this, you know, there's, there's something that, that needs, there's some caution that needs to be there. We must reject the false thinking that, that God exists to make me happy. So many people, when they talk about God, that's really the context they're talking about, isn't it? We, God doesn't exist to make us happy. We exist that we might glorify Him by His grace. And have a couple of illustrations, um, somewhat humorous. Uh, quarterback and ESPN commentator Joe Theismann, some of you know who that is, allegedly explaining to a soon-to-be ex-second wife, explaining why he had an affair. And do you know what he said? God wants Joe Theismann to be happy. Now that's from an unbeliever. That's from one that doesn't even profess uh, what's folly to talk about this, uh, you know, from one that doesn't even know God. But this, maybe some of you will remember, Jessica Hahn, that church secretary that worked with Jim Baker 20 years ago, or in, in 1987, I believe it was. And, the, you know, he was the host of the PTL, and, and they had committed immoral acts together that was all exposed, and he was in jail and, and all of that. But this is what she said, that, that God gave her a real peace about granting an interview with Playboy magazine allowing them to take topless pictures of her It was reported that Jessica Hahn still considers herself to be a Christian, but goes to God one-on-one, not through any church. That sounds very pious. You know, she has some kind of relationship with God, and God gave her special permission. No, that is clearly against the clear teaching of the Word of God. And if she would have looked into the Word of God, she would have saw that such behavior is not pleasing to God. But for us, we need to think about, as as we make decisions, as as we try to exercise wisdom in our minds, we all are challenged with decisions. Do I take this job? What about the difficulty I'm having with my spouse? How do I handle that? We need to be careful and bring our thinking in line with the Word of God. Sometimes I hear about, I was talking to somebody that's a Christian about a month ago, and he got tired of dating Christians, so he's dating non-Christians now to see if he can find a suitable spouse. Well, there's something wrong with that. It's a clear teaching of the Word of God says do not be unequally yoked. Or, a Christian saying that God has given me peace to divorce my wife. Now, what's wrong with that? God hates divorce. It's very clear here. God is not going to give you peace about that unless it's on biblical grounds. So much of the time when you hear stuff like that, it's because I'm not happy anymore and we just can't get along and God wants me to be happy, back to the Joe thing. We have to be careful. What is wrong with thinking like that? They're blinded to what God's true will is, as it's revealed in the Word of God. Well, We've looked at how we must know the will of God. That is His moral will as it's clearly revealed in the Word of God. There's no excuse not to know it. It's right here before us. Now you must live a life that is characterized by holiness. Reading the passage again, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. God is perfectly holy in His nature, and He demands holiness from His people. That is very clear. You shall be holy because I am holy. First Peter 1.16, quoting Leviticus, I believe. Also, the cry of the angels that we have in that beautiful throne room experience in Isaiah chapter 6, where the seraphim are singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. A very similar situation occurs in Revelation chapter 4. And verse 8, God is indeed holy. He is perfectly holy. There is no unrighteousness in Him whatsoever. The Apostle Paul understood God to be the holy God of the Old Testament, who is set apart from sin, set apart from impurity. The very one who demands the same holiness in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. God has not changed. And so this is true for the new people of God as well, just as it was demanded of Israel. Now some say Paul is the law-free apostle, and this is true with regards to the Jewish ceremonial law, right? He spoke very clearly against that, especially the book of Galatians um, speaks to that. But God's ethical standard does not change. His holy moral law is abiding forever. And his, this ethical standard that was clearly set forth uh, to Israel is the will of God. Your sanctification that you would be holy. John Brown, um, the commentator, says this, Holiness does not consist in mystical speculations, enthusiastic fervors, or uncommanded absurdities. It consists in thinking as God thinks and willing as God wills. That's what it comes down to. We need to think as much as we can what God thinks as it's clearly revealed in the Word of God. And if you will give yourself to read this book your thinking will be more and more conformed into understanding what God would have you to do. Well, let's talk about briefly um, what is sanctification. What is sanctification? The root of The word comes from the same word, holiness, to be set apart. Um, I, I was going to read it, but it's too long. The London Baptist Confession, chapter 13. I encourage you to read that. The three paragraphs are a great summary of what sanctification is. The word to sanctify in the Greek means to set apart, to to set something apart. Sanctification, when you see the word sanctification in the word of God it typically is speaking of the process of being set apart. Sanctified is being set apart. Sanctification is the process. Elwell says that the generic meaning of sanctification is the state of proper functioning. To sanctify someone or something is to set that person or thing apart for the use intended by the designer. Therefore, a pen is sanctified when it is used to write with. Eyeglasses are sanctified when it is used to correct vision. He goes on and says that in a theological sense, things are sanctified when they are used for the purpose God intends. Therefore, a human being is sanctified when he or she lives according to God's design and purpose. Did you follow that? I thought that was an excellent definition of sanctification. Now, let's look at a little bit into the, the actual words, the biblical definition of sanctification. The root is found in the Old Testament in the Hebrew uh, verb kadosh, and in the New Testament the Greek verb hagiazo. Now, in the Hebrew, the word means an apartness, a, a, a sacredness, holiness, and it comes from the ancient word to cut out and to remove. That's, that's, it's the similar root, the kadosh in the, uh, Hebrew, to cut out and to separate. And the root, uh, the root meaning in the Old Testament is that of purity, which is set apart from impurity. So separation from defilement. And as you see those, the word sanctify in the Old Testament, you can see that use. So the, the idea and the concept of setting apart To sanctify something is to set it apart from common use to sacred use, right? That's often how the word is referred. So try to follow this illustration. A desk in a pastor's study that was once associated with 30 other desks in an office furniture store, that's the common use when that desk is now taken and placed into the pastor's study and is actually used to assist him in the ministry of the word and in preparation, it is sanctified now. It is set aside for the use for which it was intended. Its common use was just sitting with several others doing nothing. But now it has been set apart unto a sacred use. It is consecrated to a sacred use. Now, in the New Testament, the parallel word in the Greek is hagioth. That's the root of sanctification. It's the word for holy. It's the word, the root for saint. Very similar, several words are translated from the same root. And the idea is to be set apart for God. To be, as it were, exclusively His and His alone. That is the idea. To be pure, sinless, upright, and holy is, is, is the moral sense of the word. I think also it's helpful to acknowledge that there's two aspects of sanctification. And Christians get confused about this, and it's really not that complex. Now, the whole doctrine of sanctification, there's volumes and volumes that have been written on it, and there's a lot that could be said. But these two concepts are very basic and simple, and I hope that you can grasp. Sanctification is used in two ways. And first, it is used the declarative way, Right where it's an initial salvation experience, a point in time, an event. It's a, it's a possession. It's positional, if you will. Greg Gaiman has been sanctified to the Lord. You see that? And then the other is progressive, and that's typically what we think of sanctification. That ongoing work of being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. That ongoing work of, of correcting our worldly thinking and bringing it into subjection to God's thinking and His will. It's a process. It's a practice. It's progressive. That's the idea. And we can't lose sight of that. But the ultimate goal of sanctification, according to Romans 6, is eternal life. Paul says, but now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome is eternal life that's the ultimate goal of sanctification so we've seen that it's necessary for us to understand and to know something of the moral will of God also it's necessary that we live a life that is characterized by holiness and now more briefly your motivation to holiness is that God is working in you according to his will I can't help but to think of Philippians chapter 2. You all know this passage. I'll turn to it so I don't misquote it. <clears throat> so then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, and you as a child of God, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. That's the encouragement that we have to progress in sanctification. When you're beating yourself up because you've fallen into that besetting sin, for the 48th time, you need to go back to this verse. You need to understand that God is working in you as you would confess that and repent of your sin and cry out for mercy and ask for strength. You come back here and you say, "Yay, God! I will move ahead because I know that you are working in me to make me holy. That's the encouragement that we get from that verse. Also, the fact that the the power that we have to become holy is the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Christ dwelling within us. Look over in chapter 5, verse 23 of this very book. Paul would say at the end of this letter, Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the parousia, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's asking there that God would sanctify them entirely, but it's from the Spirit, through sanctification by the Spirit. Uh, we have a similar passage in First Peter chapter 1 and verse 2. You can just listen. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with His blood, may grace and peace be yours. The sanctifying work of the Spirit. This should be encouraging for the child of God. That the Spirit is working in me. Not only has that Spirit effectually called me to salvation because I would never come to God on my own, but He is remaining to work inside of me and to continue to make me holy. Also, the encouragement that the indwelling Christ is there in His high priestly prayer in John 17 I and them, He he is in them, and you and me, as He would pray. And then Paul, in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. So, very briefly, that's the third point. That's the motivation to holiness. The motivation to press on is that God is working in me to make me holy so let's draw some concluding applications this evening so we've seen that we must know the will of God the necessity of holiness and the motivation to holiness spiritual growth does not happen overnight we should not expect that we're going to be completely sanctified overnight we're not going to be completely sanctified until we reach heaven where we will be completely sinless But a commitment to excellence and holiness is a lifelong process. So much of it depends on our own thinking. So much of it depends on how we view life and what our worldview is and what we believe this book to be and how much we rely upon it. Brothers and sisters, it is God's will, if you're a child of God, that you be sanctified, that you be made holy. That's great encouragement. That he looks upon you with all of your filth, with all of your sin that you are fully aware of tonight. Perhaps things are coming to your mind as I'm speaking. He's fully aware of all of that, and yet He has purposed to make you holy. And you should be seeing a progressing of, of a, a greater and greater holiness. Contrastly, as... What I found is as you grow in the faith, you're more sensitive to sin. And it almost seems like you're regressing. But overall, as you look at your life, you should see a progression in sanctification. He will indeed make you holy. But you yourself, at the same time, must determine to be holy. You must determine to take radical steps to put off sin. Some of you children, maybe you need to be thinking about this. How can I obey my mom? How can I obey my dad? You need to put into practice at this young stage, at this even unconverted, for most of the children here, that you will determine to obey God. And in obeying God, you will please your parents in everything that they ask of you. We need to beware of the world, especially in this 21st century. The world is trying to crush us into its mold. It was read earlier, Romans 12. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove. That is, that word is to prove approve after testing so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. I think we're about six hours from entering a new year. What will you purpose? to do in 2007 what things should you put off permanently what things should you put on to use the analogy in ephesians 4 putting off sin and putting on righteousness what will you do for the lord beware of backsliding perhaps for some of you you're not backsliding you're just kind of stuck in neutral and you can't find the gear maybe the clutch is broken and you need to go on your knees and ask god to fix the clutch so you can get it into at least first gear and begin to progress. We need to remember that this life is but a pilgrimage and we are heading to the celestial city, that beautiful picture as Bunyan would paint it, of heaven. That is our goal. That's where we're going. No matter what we do, we're going to have mountaintop experiences. We're going to go through the valley of humiliation. These are normal in the Christian life. But we have a goal and He will bring the true child of God there each and every one of you. So we must be diligent to grow in holiness. And one of the practical ways that we do this is the means of grace. Using the means of grace. Private prayer. Reading your Bible. Fellowship with believers. Partaking of the ordinances that God has given us. That God would use that to strengthen our faith. And you will be further sanctified. And as you grow in holiness... As you see yourself growing, one of the joys that that God gives us is that we have opportunity to serve the Lord. We will see a greater usefulness in our lives. We will have a greater impact in the lives of others and evangelizing the lost and encouraging the saints. As you grow in holiness, you're more equipped to be useful to the Lord in His kingdom. Hebrews 10, the writer says, For you have need of endurance. If you're like me, you have need of endurance. I have need of endurance. So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. To receive that final rest, that final rest in heaven and the reward of being with Christ forever. We need to keep the goal in mind. Your life should shine. Your neighbors where you live should know that there's something different about the man's family. There's something different about all, all the different families in here. And, and that they should know that there's something different. D.L. Moody said, A holy life will make the deepest impression. Lighthouses blow no horns. They just shine. Your life should shine as a child of God in the workplace, in your neighborhoods, everywhere that you go. If you have uh, that wonderful book, The Valley of Vision, I'd encourage you to open that up and read the end of a year and the New Year's prayers that are in there, the Puritan prayers is what the Valley of Vision is. Um, I was actually going to read a portion of one of those prayers and forgot the book. So, But I have a word also for some of you, and especially you young people who have yet to turn to Christ. What better way to begin a new year not as a dead sinner, but as one who has been born again, one that has new life in Christ. What better way to start 2007? How I pray that some of you, all of you that can understand, would admit the fact that you're a sinner, you deserve hell, that you would confess your sin to God and ask for grace to live a life that is pleasing to Him. That you would see something in Christ, something beautiful in Christ, that He came to die for unworthy sinners. Admit that you're one of those unworthy sinners and come to Christ. The book of Isaiah, chapter 59, the prophet writes Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor is His ear so dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation. Between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Confess your iniquities. Put off sin and come to him, and he will give you new life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the clear teaching of this passage that is uh, bent before us tonight. A very clear passage because Paul writes that this is your will, our sanctification. Lord we confess that what has been said what has been heard here tonight are weighty, weighty matters it is not easy to put off sins sins can be very can be very strong can be domineering but yet if the shackles of sin have been broken in conversion besetting sins can certainly be put off in measure so Lord we pray for your grace We know that you will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we are able to resist. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do a work in this small congregation. Lord, we pray that you would do mighty things with this congregation here, Grace Bible Church, San Diego. We pray that even this this church would be a bright light in this neighborhood, especially in light of it being a mere hundred yards from the largest mosque in San Diego County. Lord, we pray that you would do wonderful things in each and every heart here. We pray for reformation to begin on the inside first, that we might reform ourselves and that we might be useful in your kingdom. Lord, we pray that you would make us holy. We pray that you would strengthen us by the power of your Spirit to do so. Thank you for this time in your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.